our scripture for today is in the Gospel of Matthew and then the 22nd chapter, beginning in verse 34. And as you're turning there, um, Matthew 22 is an interesting chapter. Um, it starts off with, with Jesus sharing a parable, as he often does, of a, of a wedding banquet where people are invited and decide not to attend. And then more people are invited. But when the king comes and sees the guest, all of a sudden he says, oh, y'all aren't dressed properly, and so he turns them away. And, and so Jesus has laid kind of this framework for what's about to happen, where he's kind of calling out the church authorities and saying, this is you. That you look at it and you say, hey, you don't fit in, or this or that. And so they kind of get upset, as you can imagine, and it says that the Pharisees asked their disciples. They weren't even going to do it. They went and they kind of found their, their members and they said, hey, go ask them about this. And so they go up and they ask Jesus this familiar question of, should we pay our taxes? And you hear that interaction of Jesus saying, hey, give me a coin. Whose image is on it? Give unto Caesar what is Caesar. Give unto God what is God's. And then there's this weird interaction where the Sadducees go, we'll take it one step further, and they give this hypothetical where they say that there was this man that was married, or rather this woman that was married, sorry, and then her husband passes away, and then she marries his brother, and, and then they go on and say, so in resurrection, whose wife would she be? Jesus says, you're missing the point completely. Uh, in resurrection, you're not going to be so worried about those types of things because there is not marriage in the resurrection, but we are one family in God. And then the Pharisees get a little fed up. They've been saying, Jesus, it has to be this way or that way. And Jesus always goes, you're missing the point. And so then they say, we'll call them out. And that's where we enter in at verse 34, where it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees get their, their chance. And one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? To which Jesus replies, and we know this, it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets hang on these commands. Now I want to pause right there. Because what Jesus has just said, um, sometimes we want to make it out to be that it's just this epiphany, that they had never heard this before. But they had heard this before. Other rabbis ha have taught this exact thing. Actually, Rabbi Halil, who, who, was, who died six years prior to Jesus' birth, I read a story that he was being challenged by a Gentile, 
And he was essentially saying, the Torah has too many rules and regulations. How can you understand and keep all of it? And he said, this is my challenge to you. Recite the Torah on one foot. And so he gets on one foot and he says this. What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That's the whole Torah. The rest of it is explanation. Go and learn. So ultimately what he has pointed them to is he says, we can get so caught up in all of this other stuff, but ultimately the ruling of the scriptures is this. Love God and love everybody else. It's the core of the gospel. He says, everything else is helpful for you to understand how to live that out. If you don't believe me, you can also go look at the Ten Commandments. You know, we grew up believing those are like the ten key rules that if you can't hold anything else, maybe you can hold those ten. Well, watch this. Commandment one through four is about loving God. Commandment five through ten is about how you love your neighbor. And so when Jesus is quoting this, it wouldn't be new to them. As a matter of fact, he's quoting the Shema, which we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and he's pairing it with Leviticus 9, 19, 18. It's normal for them to hear this type of teaching. It's as normal as it is for us to come to church and hear, God say, or hear Jesus say, love the Lord your God and love everybody else. We've heard this before, right? But Jesus adds something, and if you're not familiar, you may have missed it. Because he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Now the Shema would say, and all your might. But Jesus says, with all your mind. And what he's pointing them to is that so frequently we try to do enough to be enough, but what he's saying is, what, he, what we hear over and over in the scriptures, is you need to have your mind transformed in order to understand the goodness of God and God's grace. Because we live in a world that says we must do enough to achieve enough to receive enough. And so he's saying you must transform your mind because what you've started to do is this. You've started to transform God into your image. But we're not called to transform God into our image. Instead, what we are called to do is to be transformed by God into the image of Christ Jesus. And he says, and if you've missed it, that image is an image rooted in love. And so he looks at them and he says, all this other stuff that you've gotten so caught up in, all these other disagreements that the church is wanting to weigh on, all of those things, the first question that should be asked is, is what you are doing rooted in love of God and neighbor? 
Because he goes on and you would hear this proclaimed that your faith in God is lived out through your love of God. And how do you show your love of God? Because of your love of God's creation and God's people. So therefore, your faith is lived out in how you act and interact with one another. And if that's not a gut punch, I don't know what is. But Jesus doubles down and he says, now that I've answered all your questions, I've got a question for you. And in verse 41 he says, while they were all gathered together, he says, what do you think about the Christ? Or your translation may say the Messiah. Whose son is he? And they replied, the son of David. And he says to them, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is that possible? How then can David, speaking by the Spirit, call him Lord? And he points them to Psalm 100 when he quotes it in verse 44 and when it says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. He says, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And what Jesus has just done is he said, your understanding says this. Because in their day and in their time, your, 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 your son was one that was supposed to follow you and your guidance. But then he says, wait a minute. So if the Messiah is the son of David, then how can he also be David's Lord? And they went, wait a minute. All of a sudden, my understanding of what I thought I knew has been transformed. And what, what Jesus is trying to point them to throughout this entirety of the text is this, is that sometimes we have closed off our mind to our own understanding and God is going, I'm bigger than the box that you have tried to put me in. And so... He finds himself at odds with them. And, and as Paul Harvey would say, we know the rest of the story. Because what happens? Well, we wish we could say, they said, oh, Jesus challenged my understanding, my theology, my religion, and so what did I do? I changed to follow Jesus. No, that's not what happened. What happens is they push back and get hostile and aggressive. They circle the wagons, they bring everybody in, and they put him on a cross. And sadly, if we're not careful, what Jesus is warning us against, if we have closed our minds off to the understanding of who God is, if we say God has to fit into this box, then what can happen very, very easily is we become hostile and aggressive to anything that is outside of that box, and we circle our wagons, and we hang them on a cross. You see... Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. You may not catch it in the text, but when Jesus says, whose son is the Messiah, I can imagine the Pharisees are not saying it boisterous like they know the text. 
but they're probably saying it in a hushed tone. Mumbling, stumbling, whispering. Because we know what has happened earlier in Matthew's gospel, right? Jesus has come and entered into Jerusalem. And what did the crowds scream as he walked in? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so when they utter that phrase of whose son is he, they are ultimately admitting Jesus as the Messiah. And the Pharisees find themselves a little perplexed. They thought they knew it. They thought they had everything understood. They could quote it all. But all of a sudden, Jesus says, the way of God doesn't fit in your nice, neat box. Nor does it fit in their nice, neat box. I came across a story from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who was in South Africa during the days of apartheid. And he told this story, and he says that there was a man going down the street. And he saw someone else coming the other way, and so he crossed the street to ask them a question. He says, I say to you, which is the other side of the street? The man looked confused and said, well, of course, it's that one over there. And he said, huh, funny. When I was over there, they said it was this one. And you see what, he's, what he was trying to do, what Desmond Tutu was trying to do in this instance is to show the ridiculousness of the sides that had been taken in apartheid, but I would dare say that it's not much different in our current world and culture today where we say, I have to stay on my side and you stay on your side. But the way of Jesus Christ says that we all come to the middle of the street and we rejoice together because we have found a Lord of love. Over and over, if you look at Jesus talking about the kingdom of God, I love the fact that Jesus says over and over, it's like a party. And almost every time, do you notice that? Whether it be the prodigal son or the banquets or whatever, almost every time what happens is that someone was lost, is now found, and how does it end? In celebration. But how do they get there? Nine times out of ten? Because their mind was open to understanding that they may not have God figured out all the way. That God is greater and more grandiose. And so what I think has happened, and I think we, when we look at this text and he's telling them, hey, y'all know what it says. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor. Y'all know what it says. And I would dare say we know what it says. And I would dare say our passion as church members, as good United Methodists are, to live it out. But what he's really pointing them to is this, is that some of us, our box has become so small and what love looks like that we have overcomplicated it. 
Because we've put Jesus in this nice, neat box that we call religion or theology or church or whatever. And God's going, let me out of the box. Because over and over in Scripture, Jesus presents paradoxes that don't make sense to the ways of the world. A crucified Savior. Wait a minute, we thought you were going to come on a horse mounted and take over those that oppressed us. A good Samaritan. Wait a minute. Those people? They're unclean and unworthy and are not welcome here. How can they be good? Blessed are the poor. Wait a minute. We've been taught that the blessings are all financial. How can that be true? Love your enemies and bless those that persecute you. How dare you, Jesus? Don't you know? There's a reason they're my enemies. A foot-washing Lord. Even Peter has trouble with that one. Wait a minute. I'm supposed to be washing your feet. And he says, no. Let the last be first and the first to be last. Time after time after time after time, Jesus points to this reality. Just when you think you've got him pinned down and under your thumb to understand him, he is bigger than you can comprehend. He is greater than you can comprehend. His grace is wider than you can comprehend. And some of us have boxed ourselves in and have boxed our churches in because we say this is what God expects. And God is going, wait a minute, let me define what I expect. And what do I expect? That you love me with all that you are. And that you love your neighbor with all that you are. That you stop trying to pick and partake in side versus side, but that you come to the middle and not always agree, but you come to the middle willing to meet with the other. Because I think that's where we've lost sight of it sometimes, is we're not willing to even sit down at a table with one another and have an honest conversation about it. And so often we say, oh, oh, we, we look at this idea of I'm going to love God and we lose sight of if we truly love God, that, that is lived out in how we love our neighbor. And so we go, no, my love for God is lived out through my fear of neighbor, through my hate of neighbor, through my rejection of my neighbor, because that's how I love God. And God's going, if it's rooted in hate, judgment and rejection, you've missed the point. Because we are calling all to come and be a part of the family. To welcome them in. Jesus says the old reality doesn't work anymore. Because I have come to create a new heaven and a new earth. And thy kingdom will come. Thy will will be done. Get this, on earth as it is in heaven. As we start to live into the call, that's when we see God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. 
I've shared this before, but some of the last words of a dying church are these. We've never done it that way. Or we've always done it that way. And what Jesus is saying is the ways in which we've always done things may need to be analyzed as we open our minds to see what God may be doing anew. Because here's the thing, as I've shared before, too frequently we live as though God is dead and not moving and we just say, ah, it's always going to be this way. But God's alive and well and wanting to do a new thing. And I believe God's alive and well within some of us here and wanting to do a new thing here in Forest, Mississippi at Forest United Methodist Church. And my hope and my prayer is that if God has laid that on your heart, that when somebody looks at you and goes, we've never done it that way or we've always done it a different way, that you can go, then you keep doing that. But God has called me to something new and greater as I seek to love him and love my neighbor. Because that's the call. That's what Jesus lays out here. He said, sometimes we can get so caught up in all this other stuff. But as you look at the sermon title, What's love got to do with it? The answer is real plain and simple in Jesus' eyes. Absolutely everything. Amen?